Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. And we start this week with a problem. It was a problem with the Wedgwood family, which you might have heard of. They started a pottery empire in England. They became very wealthy. Well, in the 1800s, Emma Wedgwood, who was part of this family, married a man named Charles. And Charles was worried because his mother was also a Wedgwood. So he and his wife were first cousins. He really fretted about this. Uh, He had several children who died, um, but many who lived and was a very successful family, in fact. Geneticist Adam Rutherford says that despite the family's success and wealth, Charles knew that he and his wife being so closely related could pose some serious issues. He had done lots of experiments, particularly with orchids, in which he was beginning to demonstrate this idea of pedigree collapse, which is what we're talking about, that if you, the closer related to sexual partners are, the more likely that they will have problems. Rutherford is the author of the book, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, The Human Story Retold Through Our Genes. And he argues that if anyone was in a position to know that inbreeding was not good, it was Emma Wedgwood's husband. Though I should say that Charles's last name was not Wedgwood. It was Darwin. And so he began to think that the more closely related humans were to each other, the more that their children were likely to be unwell or suffer from congenital problems. History, of course, has borne this out. Take, for example, the Habsburgs, a royal European family with tremendous power. 200 years worth of massive wealth and power across Europe, five Holy Roman Emperors, and it all comes crashing to an end with Charles II, Carlos el Jequizado, who was more inbred, this is a study done two years ago, more inbred than the offspring of a brother and a sister. He was infertile and sterile, and he was married twice to try and produce an offspring, an heir, a male heir, and they described him as being impotent. As we've learned more about genetics, Rutherford says, there's a couple of big takeaways from this story of inbreeding. One, we should ideally reproduce with people who are as genetically different from us as possible if we want to reduce the chance of inherited diseases. And two, There wasn't just inbreeding in the Wedgwood-Darwin family tree or in the Habsburg family tree. There's been a lot of inbreeding in our family tree, too. Because if you keep doubling the number of ancestors you've got up your family tree, then that number just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And Mm -hmm. if if it remains completely true, you go back a thousand years and you've got more than a trillion ancestors. Now, there haven't been a trillion people so right. uh, you've got to cram the number of people in your family tree at a point in time into the number of people alive at that time. And what that means is that our family trees collapse and they become sort of matted webs more than these branching trees that we think of. As you go further back in time, positions on your family tree begin to become occupied by the same people. As scientists have done breakthrough work sequencing genomes in recent years, we've seen the real story of genetics unfurl, including, as Rutherford says, the fact that we don't really have family trees, though we do know that what we might call our family web got its start in Africa. Rutherford argues that this increasing understanding of our history is because of the technology that's been applied to genetics, and that technology has totally upended the field. So I've been doing science now as an adult for 25 years or so, and I've never come across a field which has been in such perpetual revolution in the last five years Mm. as, as a human story. And the reason for it is all to do with the fact that we are now capable of 
extracting DNA from people who've been dead for thousands of years. And huh. until we had that ability, we were entirely relying on physical remains, paleoanthropology, so digging up old fossilized bones. And that remains a, a really valid and important branch of science. There's no doubt about that. But in 2009 and onwards, we began to be able to get genomes out of these fossils, so out of Neanderthals, out of ancient humans, out of other extinct humans. And what that meant is that we had to completely renegotiate what we thought our family tree was actually like. The first and most obvious thing was that we totally interbred with Neanderthals on many occasions, basically <laughs> as often as we met them. Genetics has a lot of euphemisms in it, and we call them gene flow events. Okay, but I don't need to explain what a gene flow event is. But we had gene <laughs> flow events between Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis on many occasions. Okay, we shared our genes, however that happens. Right, 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 right. And right. so we, okay. we know that because I carry Neanderthal DNA in me. And we only know mm. that it's Neanderthal DNA because we sequence the Neanderthal genome. And in fact, mm. we now know that every European carries Neanderthal DNA in them, which means that the ancestors of all Europeans at some point, had gene flow events with Neanderthals. <laughs> but but in some sense, they're still around because we're around and, and we've got some of their, I don't know, genetic material, right? Yeah, we certainly do. That's exactly right. We carry their legacy. So they did go extinct as a separate entity, but their legacy is carried within us. I think that's a nice way of phrasing it. In the same way that dinosaurs didn't go extinct. And at Thanksgiving, when you put a turkey on the table, right. you're looking at a dinosaur. <laughs> Which I never thought of it that way. But Well, I, I think that it's a nice way of thinking about biology as well, because it shows continuity. Right. And Darwin's great insight was that organisms are four-dimensional. We pass through time and we change with time. Mm -hmm. And when we try to describe things as they are in front of us, we're missing this temporal element to biology, which is absolutely essential for really understanding why life is the way that it is. Mm -hmm. You talk about something else that's really interesting that we think of as sort of part of genetics, this question of race. Like, what is race? And can you see it in genetics? Do you want to talk about, like, you kind of followed that question. What is race? Well, it's a big question, and it seems more relevant now than it has been in my lifetime. That's, right. that's for sure. Right. From a genetic point of view, race isn't a thing. It doesn't really exist. And so we have this huge sort of disconnect between the way we talk about race, because that's how people talk. And we, if I say someone is East Asian, you know, approximately, you can make some immediate assumptions about what they look like, mm -hmm. that they will have dark, thicker hair, um, they will have a particular skin tone, and they will have characteristics like the epicanthic fold, which is the layer of skin that typically East Asian people have over their eyes. Um, or if I talk about someone being black, then you know that I'm talking about someone of recent African descent with dark skin and, and a particular type of, of hair texture, and so on, right? The trouble is that genetics does not reflect in any way, the human variation that we sort of see in front of us. And it's evidence that evolution is quite deceptive in showing us physical characteristics, which we use as identifiers, visible physical characteristics that we think are useful identifiers, when in fact, they are totally misrepresentative of the total difference that we see in our genomes. So the, the example I give is like, if you take two 
African people, so one from Uganda and one from Ethiopia, okay. they are more likely to be more different to each other than either one of them is to a European or an Indian or a Chinese man. And so th there is more variation within Africa than, than there is in the rest of the world put together. And so it's confusing. It's confusing because it doesn't reflect our experience. So, I mean, to some degree, I assume some of what we look like has to be in our genes, like whether we have black hair or red hair or blue eyes or brown eyes. You know, you were saying race in some ways genetically like isn't a thing. Some of that has to be somewhat of a thing, right? Oh, no, it certainly is. And skin color pigmentation is almost entirely determined by, by our genes. The problem is when we say, uh, you know, this is a black person or a person of color, meaning of recent African descent, there is so much variation in skin tone within the, the continent of Africa that it's effectively meaningless. And, and this, you know, there's a, there a study from um, Sarah Tishkoff, who's based in the States, and it shows that, in fact, we now know that the origin of the variation in pigmentation, which effectively is skin color, predates the existence of Homo sapiens by several hundred thousand years. So we now think that there were early humans, ancestors, almost a million years ago, some of which had pale skin, some of which had darker skin, and a full spectrum in between. But they were all, were they all living together in Africa? They were all in Africa. Okay, okay. How they interacted with each other is, is not something that Got we it. can tell so far. Okay. But you see, you know, it becomes problematic in, at both ends of the political spectrum because you've got the so-called alt-right or straight-up neo-Nazis. I, I get a lot of correspondence from neo-Nazis um, who are saying, you know, we're Aryan. I can genetically demonstrate that I'm Norse or European, and you can't do that. There isn't a way of doing that. But they're using genetics to say, this is who I am. This is my political and cultural identity, which is not something that genetics can do. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, it's important for people of color to self-identify in their own communities. And in fact, you take two black guys from Boston and, and New York, and, and they're, they're probably genetically less related to each other as either one is to me or you or, you know, the prime minister of China. It, it also seems like you're saying that bodies are really complicated, right? There's so many things going on inside our bodies, whether it's proclivities towards a disease or uh, maybe resistance to a disease. But we can't see a lot of that. And so we put, it sounds like you're saying, in some ways, undue emphasis on some tiny little thing, which is what color, you know, is somebody's skin a little more this color, or this color, or this color, because we can see that and we can't see the other things. And we've emphasized it a lot over time. Yeah, I, I think that's. I think that you hit the nail on the head there. When you mentioned um, diseases, there, I was immediately thinking about a disease called sickle cell disease, right? And that's a recessive disease. And in America, at least, and a little bit in the UK, it is thought of by many people as being a disease of black people, and it does occur at higher frequencies within black communities. Now. There isn't such a thing as a black disease because black people isn't a good descriptor of people from a genetic point of view. What we now know is that sickle cell is a disease that evolved in areas where mosquito-borne malaria was common. And so there certainly are areas of Africa where malaria is very common, but it's not the whole of Africa. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it doesn't relate to the whole of dark-skinned African people. And in fact, we see sickle cell in populations in Greece, in the Middle East, in 
Brazil and all around the world, and they all overlap with areas where malaria is endemic. There are lyrics in... Um, I'm a big uh, rap fan, listen to a lot of hip-hop. There are loads of lyrics in hip-hop where actually saying sickle cell is like a cuss, right, or a diss. I can't remember which way around it is, but when I wrote this this bit in the book, my American editor changed it from cuss to diss on the grounds that Americans and British English have different versions <laughs> of this word. I <laughs> digress. <laughs> but it's become a thing. You know, it's become a cultural identifier. You're at high risk from sickle cell, which is a a horrible disease, but it is not a black disease because there is no such thing as a black disease. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Adam Rutherford, author of the book, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, The Human Story Retold Through Our Genes. Um, So we have revisited this question a few times on this show, but I just want to get your take on it since we're uh, talking about how our understanding of genetics has improved in the last few decades. Do you feel like you have a clearer sense from the science that you've seen um, of how much of who we are or what we do is genetic and then how much of who we are is is environmental? Yeah, man, that is a great question and one of the hardest ones (laughs) that that exists in, in human genetics. So... We used to say nature versus nurture. That's a phrase that we don't really use anymore in genetics and haven't done for a few decades. Nature via nurture is a better way of expressing it because nature is our DNA and nurture is our environment. And our environment also includes everything that isn't DNA. So it's not just, you know, when we when we say that phrase, I think a lot of people just think that it means whether your dad gave you cuddles or, you know, did your parents read to you? What school right. did you go to? What right. was the socioeconomic background that you were born into? It includes all of that. But it also includes, you know, the egg cell that was fertilized by that sperm. It includes the uterus in which you grew up and the orientation of Mm. you growing up within that uterus. Mm. So the nurture side of things is literally everything which isn't isn't genetic. Mm -hmm. Now, we've got measures for the interaction between nature and nurture, DNA and the environment, but we can't really do it for individuals, Mm. for people. What we can do it for is across populations. We can say something like, you know, the amount, this is called heritability, the amount of difference we see between people in terms of height, which is a highly genetic trait, about 80% of the difference we see in people's height is accounted for by genetics, Mm. by DNA, which means that 20% of it is accounted for by your environment, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, what you ate, how you were raised, what what exercise you did. But 20% of height is, that's a lot, right? 20% of 100 is 20. Right. So if you're, you know, two meters tall or 180 centimeters tall, then the difference, which is environmental, it could be as much as, or quickly maths off the top of my head, could be as much as 30 centimeters. Mm. I think someone will check that and write in and say I'm wrong. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's huge. That's like a foot. Right. That's, that's, that's the difference between being five foot tall and being six foot tall. So genetics is really important in that and the primary determinant, but the variance is environmental. And that can make a huge difference to your overall physicality. What is... You know, the one thing that geneticists hope to understand in the near future, they're not quite there, but they're working on it. <laughs> I think the answer to that is everything. <laughs> so Just to narrow the, it down, everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, until the human genome was published in 2001, I think we didn't really know what we didn't yet know. 
And so we, I describe this as being a Rumsfeldian problem, right? You know, remember your Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. I sure do. And, and that, um, that crazy phrase that he said about weapons of mass destruction. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. There are known unknowns. We also know there are known unknowns. There are unknown knowns. So that is to say we know there are some things we do not know. You know, blah, blah, blah. And he was mocked for it. It was not elegant as a phrase. But in fact... It's pretty profound and it's really important for science that if you don't know what you don't know, right. then you don't have the sort of framework in yes. which you can start finding out that stuff. Right. And the Human Genome Project was the process of understanding what we didn't yet know. Mm -hmm. So we converted those unknown unknowns into known unknowns. <laughs> That's and, right. And <laughs> So, yeah, I'm sort of Rumsfeldian in, yeah. in my outlook when it comes to that. And that's where we're at the moment. We sort of know the things that we don't yet know. And it's to do with, you know, where is all of that heritability for all human traits, for complex diseases? How is it that we have fewer genes than a banana, but we consider ourselves to be a bit more sophisticated than bananas? Mm -hmm. You know, we're beginning to fill in the gaps of how the human story migration over the earth has um transpired over the last million years or so that's all coming together and then there's disease there is relieving and understanding really complex diseases like heart disease and obesity which is an epidemic in the west in america and in the uk and and large parts of europe now and the 200 types of cancers that kill many of us and also you know neurodegenerative diseases all of these things have profoundly deep roots in human variation which can be seen in the genome and it's just a case, we're at that stage now where we're sort of chipping away at some of the details. We've got the broad brush picture is painted. We, we pretty much understand large aspects of how human biology works, but it's all in the details. And my Lord, genetics is all about the details. Adam Rutherford is a science writer, geneticist, and author of the book, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, The Human Story Retold Through Our Genes. Adam, thank you so much. This was great. Uh, it was great fun talking to you. You can hear this segment again. You can share it by heading to our website. There, we will also have a recently published look at what role race and the genetics of race should play at the doctor's office. That's all at innovationhub.org. 